Indeed, we join, Lord, with the hymn writer in saying, Speak. Speak to us now and feed our hearts. Nourish us so that we leave this place satisfied. So that, Lord, we may be may be so filled with Your grace and goodness that all of the temptations, all the idols of this world, all the emptiness of its promises would be to us as dust, as foolishness. And that Jesus Christ would be enough, our all and in all. So bless us as we read Your Word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me then to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, it's page 1059. John is a unique gospel writer. The other three writers are often referred to. Maybe you read this in commentaries or in various things. They're called the synoptics. And that word just means that they see things together. If you think of optics, that has to do with seeing or eyes. And then sin has the idea of there of together, synonymous, uh, that idea. So synoptic means they see things together, which means if you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll notice that the story is told in basically the same way. John's different. John tells the story in a very different way. It's very stylized, very organized. He's got seven miracles. He's also got seven I am sayings, and it's the I am sayings that are going to occupy the next seven months of our Lord's Supper celebrations, beginning with the very first one, which is I am the bread of life. So John 6, we're going to begin reading at verse 22. We'll read to verse 40. Hear the word of God. On the next day, the crowd then that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him, the, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. As for the reading of God's holy word, again, our text is verse 35. It's verse 35 in its context, but it's verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me 
shall never thirst. May the Lord now add His blessing to that word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, it is worth for a moment just setting the uh, broadest context for the I am statements that we are now going to begin seeing. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, You know all of these sayings, and you know, of course, that they are echoes of what God said to Moses in the burning bush. Remember in Exodus 3, Uh, When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? When they ask me who sent you, who do I say sent me? And then God reveals His name, you'll remember, to Moses. Tell them that I am who I am sent you. Yahweh, that of course is His Hebrew name sometimes in English. Jehovah, I am who I am. In our Bibles, the word Lord capitalized. That's the same word. And so when Jesus seven times, as John records for us in his gospel, when he seven times says, I am whatever follows, he is doing more than just describing something about his ministry or about his person. He is truly identifying himself with the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. He's identifying himself with Yahweh. Before Moses was, I am, he says, he's revealing himself to be more than just a man, revealing himself to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. And that's important to understand not only because it pushes back against any of those people who might suggest that Jesus never referred to himself as divine. He most certainly did in all of these seven statements he did. But it also reminds us of exactly the challenge we face when it comes to the Lord's Supper, when it comes to faith generally, when it comes to being a Christian. It is that in Jesus Christ there is such a humility that it's easy to overlook Him and forget who He truly is. And we have a very good example of that already here in the first of the I Am statements, I Am the Bread of Life. Now we want to set for a moment the context for this statement which occurs after Jesus had fed, as we read in John chapter 6, the 5,000. And then Jesus, after having fed the 5,000, sent his disciples away that he might go up into the hills to pray. And you'll remember after that, walked on the water. You remember that story and Peter coming out and that whole business. He went to meet them on the water, that second miracle of divine demonstration. And then they made it to the other side of the sea. And Jesus, by doing this, demonstrates that He truly is God. Who who else can do these things? Who else can multiply the loaves? Who else can walk on the water? He shows Himself to be truly God. But He also shows Himself to be extremely compassionate and gracious. He feeds the 5,000. They have been following Him and He has compassion upon them. Not only that, but when the disciples were on the water and they were frightened because, uh, or as they were pulling towards the um, shore and the sea was becoming rough because a strong wind was blowing, it is in that moment of desperation that Jesus then arrives. It's in that moment of need the Lord shows himself to be not just more than a man, but a man who is all that we need, a man who satisfies all of our desires. Indeed, it is this very thing that the people fail to recognize about Jesus also in this event in John chapter 6. 
They want to make him king because, as we read in verse 15, by force, they want to make him king because this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world, having already eaten these five, or all of this food. They rejoice to have full bellies and want Jesus to become indeed the one who will feed them endlessly with free food. And, and they misunderstand, as Jesus himself says to them, what's going on. He says, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The people see the miracles that Jesus is performing, but never move beyond the miracles to reflect on the miracle worker. They never see who Jesus truly is. And that's a perfectly reasonable or understandable response from anyone, from any human being, even from us within the church, who know Jesus Christ, who can say many things about Jesus Christ, who can wax eloquent about His divinity and His incarnation, who can speak of of who Jesus is with great theological precision, but who can sometimes fail to see Jesus Christ for truly who He is. And understandably, because life is difficult, life is demanding, and the pressures of life are many. You think of of meals that have to be done, laundry that has to be cleaned. You think of the tasks you have already for this coming week at work. Maybe sometime tonight it starts to go through your mind. What do I have to do tomorrow? What do I have to accomplish? Maybe the bills that are piling up are attracting your attention. Maybe it's all the homework you have to do as school starts to come to an end. Maybe it's, oh, am I going to be able to get out with my friends? Maybe it's some soccer practice or some other activity. Whatever it is, our weeks can be so full. Our activities can be so many. Our minds can be so dominated with the things of everyday life that we very easily develop an earthly focus just because of what's in front of us every day. Just because you got to get up and go to work and then you got to come home and you got to do all of these things. And it's hard to get a heavenly focus when you're so dominated with earthly concerns. And the world around us doesn't help us much either. Don't miss that. Not just filling our, our vision with promises of happiness, on Instagram, on television, in so many ways. It promises that tell us if we have this, if we become that, if we do this program, if we walk in that way, then our lives will be happy, then we'll have what we want, then we'll be satisfied. But also through a constant telling us that that is in the end all that there is in this life. I mean, at the end of the day, we're just on this piece of rock hurtling through space and one day we'll be returned to carbon. That's the world's word to us. So don't look up. Don't think deeply. Don't ask questions. Just consume, consume, consume. Fill yourself with all the pleasures of this life. Gain and celebrate all of the joys you might ever want to have. Taste it all and see the blessing of this world. Get what you want now. Don't sacrifice. Don't suffer. Don't put it off to tomorrow. Some fairy future tale blessing that is coming. No, no, no. Carpe diem. Seize the day, we're told. And our human nature is quite happy to embrace this future, or this rather this living in the moment this present reality, this putting off of tomorrow. We want to be happy today. We want to be satisfied now. 
And indeed, by nature, we place all of ourselves at the very center of this universe and expect our children, our spouses, our jobs, our society, our government, our culture to make us the greatest good and the greatest joy of all life. Our world lives that way, and we in the church can live that way too. But follow this pathway for a moment. Follow it with the world. Follow it with these people that have lived it maybe longer than you have. Follow the, the aging rock stars in the Rolling Stones. Follow it in all of the billionaires who have lived their lives so long. Follow it with all of these people that have satisfied their hearts with all of the pleasures of fl- flesh. And ask them how filled they are. Ask them how satisfied their hearts are. And you discover they speak more of dissatisfaction. For how many of the wealthy do not tell us that money doesn't satisfy? Or look at all of the division that it produces in relationships, in marriages, in homes. This pursuit of, the, of happiness for self. Has it made people's marriages better? Has it made their families better? How often does our pursuit of personal happiness come at the expense of those around us? Indeed, look at the emptiness of our culture. Look at the vacuity. Listen to the music. Listen to how meaningless it is. Its drivel is pointless. It is a bottomless pit of nothingness and understandably so. Because the problem with the pursuit of material joy, the problem with the stuffing our hearts, our mouths, our lives with the things of this life is that you always need more. You're never fully satisfied. There's always a new technological event. There's always a new outfit to buy. There's always a new vehicle to own. A new vacation to experience. A new person to love. A new experience to be had. You're never satisfied. We're like the pirates in Pirates of the Caribbean. You remember Pirates of the Caribbean, the very first one. And you remember when, Cap- the, when Captain Barbosa shows then that in fact he cannot enjoy anything. He can't enjoy an apple. He can't enjoy meat. He can't enjoy drink because he truly is a dead man. That is a perfect picture of the world in which we live. Look at the effect of man's rejection throughout redemptive history from the fall in the beginning to the idol gods of all the nations. See how man pursues happiness, pursues blessing in some form or another, and never is satisfied. Idols cannot bless. They are dead. And so are those who worship them. In fact, death is the most convincing argument of this truth of all. Because for all of the stuff we try and consume and fill our lives with, in the end, we die. We die unsatisfied. We die empty. We die weak and frail. And that's the context in which the Lord now speaks this Word to His people. The context of an earthly-focused, materialistic program that never satisfies or blesses. And in the midst of all of that emptiness, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
And notice he had already called the people to faith in him in the verses 27 through 29. And when he had called them to faith in him, what did they do? They said, well, you've got to prove yourself first. That'll become a bit of a theme in these I am statements. Wait a second, if you want us to believe in you, then, then show us a sign. Do, Moses gave us manna. Now just think of that. They'd just eaten the 5,000, the bread that the Lord had given. But now they say, show us a sign that you are worthy of what you've just said to us, that we have to believe in you. Fine, prove it, they say. And Jesus' respo- Jesus's response to them reminds them that the manna that they had experienced and enjoyed in the desert was really a shadow. It was a promise of a greater blessing. It was a sign, not of sufficiency. And, and it was not sufficient, we know, because it had to come every day. You know, remember that manna had to come every day. And if you need a blessing to come every day, then that blessing's not enough. Because it hasn't satisfied you. Something that satisfies you will satisfy you forever. It'll be something that you don't need anymore of, that you are content with eternally. Manna can't do that because you've got to eat it every day. You need to experience that pleasurable blessing every day. You need to have that fun every day. The fact that it doesn't satisfy is a demonstration of its emptiness. And Jesus says that He in the end is the fulfillment of that promise. He in the end is the greater blessing. Not just that He gives a better blessing, but that He is the better blessing. And then He goes on, we didn't read that, but He goes on to speak about how the people need to eat His body and His blood. They need to eat His flesh and blood. In verse 53, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now we think to ourselves, well, we got that, we got that no problem. We understand. Lord's Supper, that's it. Simple. Okay, no problem. We're not offended by those words of Jesus. We don't imagine that he's trying to suggest cannibalism. We don't suggest that he's trying to argue for something odd, something very disturbing. We say to ourselves, no, he's just speaking symbolically, he's speaking metaphorically. But what we discover, of course, is that many disciples left Jesus precisely because He said those things and Jesus never corrected them. He didn't say, stop, 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 just a sec. You don't understand what I'm saying. I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. And in fact, He's not talking about the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper hasn't been established yet. That doesn't get established to the end of His ministry. So this is, cannot be a reference to the Lord's Supper, at least not yet. It can, for, it can anticipate the Lord's Supper, but it can't be a reference to the Lord's Supper. And indeed, we are better off if we actually listen to the very difficult words, very hard words. Indeed, Jesus says to His disciples, do you want to leave Me too? Because I've said these things, do you want to leave Me too? And Peter says, no, for where shall we go? With you are the words of life. It's better, it's better that we take a moment to work through what Jesus is saying. And when we hear His words in its context, we recognize that Jesus is telling His hearers in no uncertain terms that the only way The only way for any of us here today and in all of history, the only way that any of us will ever enjoy true and eternal blessing, the only way we'll ever be satisfied is if Jesus is one with us and we are one with Him. 
that the only blessing there is in this life to be found in all of the pleasures of life is found wrapped up entirely in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, in His incarnation, in His crucified body, in His resurrected flesh and blood, in His seating at the right hand of of God at this point. That Jesus Christ is, not just gives, but is, salvation, joy, blessing, satisfaction, contentment, and peace. To put it another way, nothing will fill our hearts and nothing will satisfy our spirits until Jesus dwells in us and we in Him. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Him. And the proof of this, the truth of this, is found on the Easter weekend. In the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus' revelation here would be meaningless except that by His sacrifice, He in fact does address the deepest and most profound problem that we experience in this life. Not our want of stuff. That's not the problem. That's the symptom of the problem. The fact that we're not satisfied. The fact that we're constantly wanting more. The fact that we think that blessing's just around the corner. The the fact that we think that if everybody would just get out of my way, I could finally be happy. If I could be free of all these constraints, I would finally be content. The fact that we think that is a symptom of the problem. The problem is we rejected the source of blessing in the beginning. Remember the garden. Remember its overflowing bounty. Remember what God said to man. It's all yours to eat of. And we said no. And went out into the desert with the sand and the emptiness and the misery. We rejected the source of blessing. Our rejection of the Lord. It's shame. It's embarrassment. When we do foolish things and then we are embarrassed by what we've done. That's the real problem in this fallen world. That's what we're trying to quiet with our endless Amazon purchases. We're trying to find happiness in something other than Jesus. And the truth of Jesus' words are found in the experiences of God's people, the ones for whom He died and rose again. Augustine, who who rejected Jesus all of his life until he heard a little girl saying, take up and read, and then was filled to the fullness of God's goodness and grace. Martin Luther, John Calvin, countless others who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that the world is full of dust and misery. The experience of the church has always been, of those who have gone before us has always been, satisfaction in the blessedness of Christ. It is in the peace of their countenance. It's in their service and sacrificial surrender for others. It's in their giving to Christian schools and the churches. It's in their use or blessing those who are in greater need. You ask yourself, how can these people surrender so much in order to be a blessing to others? And the answer is because they're the wealthiest in all the world. They know true contentment. They know how to be content in want. And they know how to be content in plenty because they have understood the joy and peace that is unmatched in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ reveals to us the truth of His words. Experience teaches us the truth of His words. And the command of Christ calls us to embrace this. 
Not just in the Lord's Supper. Not just in this brief moment where we receive a bit of bread and wine. But in the moment wherein we say to the Lord, You are my all and all and I will give myself to You in a radically reoriented life. One that puts away the priorities of this world and instead puts Jesus at the very center and says, I will be satisfied only with You. One that does not seek satisfaction in stuff, in places, in praise, but in praising the Savior. That's what we are called to do by virtue of this revelation of Jesus Christ wherein He says, I am the bread of life. And now you are asked as you go into this week and as you go into this week to pursue blessing and happiness in your work, in your relationships, in your, in your experiences of life. Against all of that, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I satisfy your soul. I am enough. What does that look like for us then? What does that look like for those who are radically reoriented and who find themselves only satisfied with Jesus Christ? Well, it certainly says that we're going to come to church. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper, absolutely, because here we're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. It means we come to church each week, both services. We come because here we are filled to the fullness of God's grace. It means that we participate meaningfully in the church's activities and cadets, kingdom seekers, catechism, young people's teen club, Bible studies. It means that we do devotions, personal and private devotions, where we feast upon the Word of God. It means that our earbuds are filled with podcasts that tell us about the Lord and about His grace. It means that we live in a way that is Christ-like, that we are respectful, that we are kind, that we are loving, that we are gracious. It means that we orient our lives in such a way that they are lived only for the Lord. Indeed, the question that we must each and every one of us ask in light of Jesus Christ's revelation here is not, what do I do? That's the question the people asked of Jesus when He said that they were to believe in Him. And He said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? It's a lovely translation of a difficult Greek phrase. But it places the emphasis on the question these people said, okay, Jesus. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And they say, what must we do to be doing the works? Jesus says, trust in me. They say, what must we do? Jesus says, no, you haven't understood. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The question is not, what do I do? The question you need to ask yourself today as you come to the Lord's Supper, as you come to feast upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the question you must ask yourself is, who am I pursuing? Who or what am I consuming? Who do I think will satisfy my heart's desire? Is it a girlfriend, a boyfriend? Is it drugs or drink? Is it popularity or power? Is it wealth? Or is it Jesus? Is it Jesus who satisfies eternally, who deeply, profoundly, and wonderfully fills our hearts and souls with a joy unmistakable? The world's joy satisfies for a short time. Jesus satisfies eternally. For He speaks to us this glorious word of grace. I am the bread of life. Let's come before Him in prayer.
Gracious God and Heavenly Father, it's not easy to keep a focus on Jesus in a world like ours, in the materialistic age of ours, in a permissive, immoral age of ours, where the world says, fill your boots, make your life full of all of the debauchery and immorality and wickedness of this life. And, and we do it and we wake up hungover and we do it and we wake up guilty and we wake up shameful and we do it and we feel embarrassed and empty and at some point we stop and say, is that all there's to this life? So many in our world say that, Lord. So many in our world see no hope, no meaning. How often don't we read in the newspapers and online, Lord, of some Instagram influencer with thousands, millions of followers who took their own life out of despair. That's not a picture of our world, Lord, what is. But now we get to come and see the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We get to see that which satisfies. May it satisfy for all of us, Lord. May all of our hearts embrace Him by faith. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me then to page 41. 41 in your forms and prayers books. And as you're doing that, let me welcome the following guests to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Harold and Jane Howarda uh, from the Maranatha Canary Reformed Church in Fergus. Kyle and Kathleen Veldhusen from Emmanuel URC in Jordan. Uh, ben Westervelt from the Dunville Grace URC. Zach Cullen from the Zion FRC. Bert Marietta Mulder from Grace URC in Dunville. Emma McKelsey from Emmanuel in Jordan. Julie Duma from the Carmen East Canary Reformed Church in Manitoba. Carmen, Manitoba. Peter Wassenaar from Spring Creek Canadian Reformed Church, Rachel Wagter from the Zion Free Reformed Church, Robert and Lauren Port from the Bethel URC of Elmer, uh, and Chris Van Manen from the Hope Reformed Church of Tilsonburg. To all these guests, we certainly extend a warm welcome, grateful that we share with you a like precious faith and that we may be united one to each other through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We're going to uh, turn... Sorry, to page 39. I was a page early. Page 39 in our Forms and Prayers books where we find these words written. Let us also consider the purpose for which our Lord has instituted His Supper that we should do this in remembrance of Him and this is how we remember Him by it. First, let us be fully persuaded in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ, according to the promises made to our forefathers in the Old Testament, was sent by the Father into this world that He assumed our flesh and blood, that He took upon Himself for us the wrath of God under which we should have perished eternally, and that from the beginning of His incarnation until the end of His life, He fulfilled for us all obedience and righteousness of the divine law. This was especially evident when the weight of our sins and the wrath of God caused Him to sweat drops of blood in the garden. He was bound so that we might be loosed from our sins, and afterward He suffered countless insults so that we might never be put to shame. Let us confidently believe that he was innocent yet not, or yet put to death, that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God, that he even allowed his own blessed body to be nailed to the cross so as to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. In doing so, he took from us the curse and bore it himself so that he might fill us with his blessing. He humbled himself to the very deepest reproach and anguish of hell in body and soul on the cross when he cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did all of this so that we might be accepted by God, never to be rejected by Him. 
Indeed, with his death and the shedding of his blood, he confirmed the new and eternal covenant, the covenant of grace and reconciliation, when he said, it is finished. In order that we might firmly believe that we belong to this covenant of grace, during the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That is... As often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, as a sure reminder and pledge, you shall be admonished of and assured of my great love and faithfulness toward you. Because you otherwise would have suffered eternal death, I give my body and blood for you in my death on the cross. And as certainly as this bread is broken before you and this cup is given to you, and with your mouth you eat and drink in remembrance of me, so surely do I nourish and refresh for everlasting life your hungry and thirsty souls with my crucified body and shed blood. From the institution of this Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that he directs our faith to his perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross as the only only foundation of our salvation. By this sacrifice, he has become to our hungry and thirsty souls the true food and drink of life eternal. For by his death, he has taken away the cause of our eternal death and misery, our sin. He has also obtained for us the life-giving Spirit who dwells in Christ, our head, and enables us who are his members to have communion with him. And be made partakers of his riches, including eternal life, righteousness, and glory. Besides, by this same Spirit, we are also united as members of one body in true Christian love. As the Apostle Paul says, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. As many grains are ground to prepare one loaf of bread, and as many grapes are pressed together to produce wine, so we who by true faith are incorporated into Christ shall be one body through Christian love. For the sake of our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. He loved us so greatly in order that we might show His love toward one another, not only in words, but also in deeds. May the Almighty, merciful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ help us in this through His Holy Spirit. Amen. That we may obtain all these blessings, let us humble ourselves before God and with true faith implore Him for His grace. And we'll conclude this prayer with the Lord's Prayer together. Let us pray. Merciful God and Father, We cherish the blessed memory of the death and sufferings of your dear Son, Jesus Christ. and We ask that in this supper you will so work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that with true confidence we might give ourselves up more and more unto your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this might allow our burdened and contrite hearts to be nourished and refreshed with the true body and blood of Him who is true God and true man, the only heavenly bread. Empower us to no longer live in our sins, knowing that He lives in us and we in Him. May we truly be partakers of the new and everlasting covenant of grace, and may we not doubt that you will forever be our gracious Father, who does not impute the guilt of our sins to us and who provides us with all that we need for body and soul, as your dear children and heirs. Grant us also your grace that we may take up our cross cheerfully, deny ourselves, confess our Savior, and in all tribulation with uplifted head, expect our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. There he will make our mortal bodies like unto his glorified body and take us to be with him in eternity. Answer us, O God and merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Then as we prepare to receive the supper, we do so by singing. We're going to sing from number 494, both before and after our participation in the elements of the Lord's Supper. Before, we're going to sing 494, the stanzas 1 and 4. So 1 and 4 of number 494. By this Holy Supper, may we also be strengthened in the Catholic, undoubted Christian faith of which we make profession with heart and mouth, 